everyone. Welcome to uh, Perspectives. I had it like uh, for a minute. Welcome to Perspectives with Martina and Lissette. Um, and we are back today with a wonderful guest. Her name is Sharita. Um, she will be here uh, as a guest speaking about her experience um, as it relates to her identity in terms of, of that proximity to whiteness and just white supremacy overall, as we have been talking about throughout some other videos, if you have seen those as well. And so we're really just going to kick it over to Sharita um, to tell us a little bit about who she is. And, you know, we'll let you speak and then we can dive right into things. But before, let's set anything you would like to say as well. No, I think uh, really ready to kind of start this conversation. Uh, as you have seen, sort of the title of this whole series has been, uh, Who Am I? So we'll, we'll see and we'll kind of explore that that theme, but I'm just kind of going to throw it to Sharita. Let us know a little bit of, just introduce yourself to, to our, our audience, to our listeners, uh, and then we can start the conversation. Great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am so honored to be here with you all today. Just two dynamic women. I mean, just the boldness and the boldness that it takes to even speak during this time period where we hear so much noise coming from all types of directions. But when you have a sound that is bringing forth information and ideas and challenging norms, um, kudos, that is to be applauded. So mm -hmm. I want to say thank you all to you all for the invitation. But I am Sharita Morrison. And uh, I am a native Chicagoan, born and raised on the south side of Chicago, a proud product of uh, Chicago public schools. Uh, Lynn Bloom High School is, is, is my alma mater. I would have to say SWOOP. That is our internal uh, camaraderie, a uh, form of, of camaraderie. And, uh, and then I matriculated on to um, my HBCU, which is Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And the interesting thing about how, who I, who am I in the context of um, traveling from Chicago, which is my birthplace, and my parents were from the South, uh, and then going, attending a, an HBCU for my undergraduate career, I believe it was uh, probably one of the best decisions I could have made, especially because of my continued matriculation into PWIs for um, two graduate degrees, uh, one from um, uh, DePaul University and the other one from Northwestern. And it is in the context of Southern um, that uh, who I am and how important my identification is and how I represent our community um, as an African-American woman, um, how important that is overall in the context of my life, not just in the four years uh, plus, because I had a good time uh, down in Louisiana. <laughs> so, it's a fun state. It's a fun state. <laughs> New Orleans is down the street. I mean, what do you expect? You know what I mean? So, you know, it, in that context, but but what it means after you leave here, you know, that, that you are not just representing our culture here at this institution, but you carry this banner wherever you go. And there is a, an expectation in um how you may have to dig deep into those roots, um, and, and especially when you encounter places that challenge the very um, uh, 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 idea of, of who you are and challenge it in such a way to make you feel, uh, do I know enough? Uh, am I smart enough? Uh, am I connected enough? 
you know, and so um, those were some of the challenges that I faced as I'm continuing to still introduce myself as um, a, a woman who started a nonprofit organization uh, almost 27 years ago, uh, serving over 7,000 uh, African-American girls on the South Side and in the South Suburban communities, uh, providing uh, health promotion and uh, college access programs that have taken them all over the country, providing service, teaching leadership development. And uh, as a product of that service, to the community because we, myself and those working with me consider ourselves survey leaders, um, helped to support uh, one, over 1,000 girls to become first-generation college graduates. And so in that process, you know, of who they are and, and what that means every time we step in front of them and as we're going on our own journeys of who we are, um, constantly trying to help them develop a positive identity of who they are, um, no matter where they're coming from. So whether it's Inglewood or whether it's uh, Dalton in the South Suburbs or whether it's Woodlawn or whether it's Robbins in the South Suburbs, uh, but knowing that um, my socioeconomic status nor my parents' socioeconomic status um, nor their completion of a college degree does not define who I am. I'm on a journey to find out who I am. And every day we should be drawing closer and closer to that. So in addition to um, uh, starting Demoiselle to Femme, which is French for Young Ladies to Women, which I have had the glorious pleasure of, of serving as the CEO for many years and transitioned out so that new leadership could come in more recently. I also teach uh, multiculturalism in the social, uh, sociology department at uh, DePaul University. And I wear a whole bunch of other hats in the community because our organization has several spinoff organizations, one being uh, the Coalition on Urban Girls Chicago, uh, which really advocates for black and brown girls in the city of Chicago and just really addressing some of the issues uh, to make sure that their health, safety, and wellness is at the forefront of the agenda of the city of Chicago. And uh, we also have an initiative where we're, we're, we're aspiring to open up the first uh, STEAM school for girls, Katherine G. Johnson STEAM school for girls, uh, K through eight. So um, in my world, a lot of things are centered around girls, but outside of that, the extension of my work, of course, spills over into even the Latino policy forum because I have a consulting uh, organization where uh, at the Latino policy forum, I had the pleasure of working with the Seth. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a leader in the Multicultural Academy and uh, MLA is where we are bringing black and brown leaders together across the city to build uh, bridges of multiculturalism and, and coalition building and all of those things that will help us to be a stronger alliance. So again, that is in explaining who I am, just in the context of just tell us a little bit about yourself, you can just see that there's there are uh, so many intersectionalities of, of who I am in terms of my own identity um, as an African-American woman, as a woman who has completed some um, educational aspirations, as a Christian woman, which um, in itself has its own complexities, um, especially knowing that that same religion that I, that I love and, and hold and, and, and use as a compass for my life has been manipulated by people to serve their own agendas. So I think that's just a, 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 a definite, a broad, but a long, but a deep, uh, just a little bit of the intro into who I am.
Well, that was great. I really appreciate you kind of, you know, giving us overview and, and giving our audience overview of who you are and kind of where you started and how you ended up to where you are. Yeah. And you know what I'm really interested in, because Sharita, I know you are really about mentoring, especially mm -hmm. like you said, black and brown girls. Yeah. Why is that such a big part of what like, you know, and where did you decide along the way that, you know what, I think I want to mentor black and brown girls. Like how did this journey start for you? You know what? I don't think I was looking for mentoring. I think it found me um, as I hope it finds all of us because I think honestly, um, I think we all have a responsibility to mentor. Um, I have been reading uh, one of the last books from Dr. King, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Mm. And his concern was really about um, just the uh, preparation that the leaders of his time, um, had they done enough to really prepare those who were coming after them to take up the charge and to take up the banner and take it to another level uh, to really challenge our economic status and, and economic equity and opportunities. And had we done enough, have we, have we done enough in challenging their character to, to demonstrate how we carry ourselves and our belief in grounding in who we are and um, how nonviolence was not an act of submission, but it was an act of power. And so just really challenging and saying, did we do enough? Have we taught enough? Um, have we demonstrated the complexity of, of who we are as leaders enough? And, and I find myself, you know, when I think about where I was when I graduated from college, where most of us really begin to ask, you know, who I am. And whether you graduated from college or not, just those emerging adult years, so those 18 to 24, I think college has a way of kind of helping you prepare that and lift your hopes up and make you feel like the whole world is waiting for you to graduate with that degree. And then you realize they're not. <laughs> you don't have to really do something, you know what I mean? Like, to really make some things happen. And I think, you know, so college does help to do that. And then when you're not on a college campus, I think that journey can become a little bit harder because oftentimes those resources aren't there for our young people. And so, you know, graduating and kind of trying to figure out where I'm going, uh, because I thought I was going to take Oprah's place as the next, uh, you know, broadcast star. And, and things kind of took a shift. And I started working in a job just because your parents start to say, okay, now, when are you going to get a job? See, you sleeping late. And then you get up and you go out with your friends. And so where are we going from here? And right. so um, my brother had ironically had a friend who was uh, supervising at an at a, at a agency in the uh, Inglewood community. And uh, it was an agency for young people who were going through challenges during their development. And at some point, they had some engagement with a law enforcement and their parents had decided they no longer wanted them. And so our, yeah, yeah this was deep. This was deep. Like, you all, I was carrying a pager. So you all don't even remember that day, but I would carry a pager on the weekend. And if the pager went off, that meant that there was a young person at the police department on 63rd of Racine, and that parent was refusing to take that child home with them. Mm -hmm. So we were all about building reconciliation. Here I am, you know, a recent college grad. I don't know anything about this. And they just kind of threw you in it, you know. So I'm just like, <laughs> I might not know what I'm doing, but I know how to talk, right? And so, you know, the goal was to get the parents and the students 
you know, the child to agree to at least, you know, try the program out and to come in for services, which included like wraparound services, like individual counseling, group counseling, uh, um, working with school, because oftentimes they had not been in school. And so um, I started to learn, I was, I was, you know, I had a niche for it. I was really good at it. And but the young people really gravitated to me. And I had this little edge, you know, um, coming back from Chicago, I'm not playing with you kids, you know, they like that kind of, you know, like, oh, Sharita, she's cool, you know, and, and I realized that oftentimes I was doing nothing but repeating to them things that my parents had said to me, some of which I didn't, may not even listen to, but I knew it was sound judgment and good wisdom for them at that moment, yeah. and, and they were really receptive to it, and at that time, I really began to see young people uh, who were living in our uh, distressed, most distressed and under-resourced communities. And I really began to see how different my life growing up in the middle-class community uh, on the South side of Chicago was very different from these young people. And not only did I recognize that I, it was different, but I recognized that there were some injustices in this. Um, that, you know, where the, the, the place where my parents took me to receive medical care and medical services with their insurance um, was really nice. Aesthetic was really nice. The doctors, everyone was very receptive. And I remember taking a young lady um, in to see because we had to just pretty much kind of, kind of do casework for them. And I remember taking her into this clinic. I will never forget it. Even talking to you all today, I can smell the clinic um, in my in my nostrils. I can I can I can feel how dark it felt, um, and and I just remember saying, "This is not okay. Like like this is not right." You know, um, and at that time, I was in my early twenties, not really knowing what to do with all of that. Um, but I stayed at that at that job for. For at least about a year or so, um, they were like many um, uh, uh, black or BIPOC-owned uh, uh, nonprofits in the city of Chicago. They struggled with resources. They struggled with funding. Um, they did not have like uh, um, lines of credit, so that if there was a delay in their funding from the state, which there always was, mm -hmm. uh, that. Um, our checks would not be delayed and, and you could go to the bank and, you know, you, it was just some issues sometimes. Um, and so I transitioned out of that, that, that organization and transitioned into the YWCA where I started working with young women with sexual assault and dating violence. So here was another level of advocacy and education. And then I was going into the schools, providing education about our relationships and you know, within our communities, sometimes there is this normalization of violence in relationships as an expectation. That if I have an argument and that young man or, or your husband or your boyfriend puts your hand, his hands on you, um, that, that in some of our cultures and some of our homes, you know, there may be a normalization of that, uh, especially in our music. And what does that mean in terms of a person loving you or he's so jealous or, but no, those are red flags. And so it, that was another space of mentoring uh, and, and taking on that responsibility. And it was there while I was working at the YWCA that I founded Demoiselle to Femme when I was 25 years old and said, you know, we have to do something. And this is where that, that faith-based hat comes in because at that time, um, I was working with the young people at my church, but I knew the church was not addressing issues that girls were going through. No, people were getting pregnant, but nobody's talking about sex. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's the mystery. <laughs> well, how did it happen? I mean, right. like, really, somebody was doing something, right? Um, but they just they just didn't want to talk about it. And um, there were just issues that weren't being addressed. And so I approached my pastor, who was uh, very staunch and conservative. Uh, and I said, you know, do you mind? We have this house across the street from the church that no one's using. And I'd love to take some girls in there on Saturdays. And I have another woman, uh, Romanita Walker, who is willing to go in there with me. And, uh, and if we have your permission, we'd love to do it. He said, go for it. And they gave us a budget of $500. And with that $500, I mean, we made that stretch. Do you hear me? But we took that $500 and we started off with 14 girls, many who after completion of college have come and worked in our organization as directors and now in our leadership um, that uh, they, you know, we started. And so I really want to encourage people that, uh, whether it's mentorship or um, social justice or whatever it is that you're going into, it doesn't take much. Mm -hmm. All it takes is a commitment and a will. And sometimes you don't even have to have a full bone plan. You know, um, planning is great, but sometimes you just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And um, and so we started with the will and a commitment to teach girls things that we felt that they needed to know, that they wanted to know, because we, we felt their voice was really important in, in our sessions and building the curricula. Uh, but also just things that uh, we had experienced and uh, stoves that we had touched after people told us it was hot and, and we still touched it anyway and, and got burned. Um, and we wanted to tell them again, that stove is hot. Yeah. Somebody told us it was hot, we touched it. You don't need to touch it because we touched that for you. And um, so it became embedded as a responsibility. So now I find myself, it's just a natural um, uh, reaction in life that, you know, whether it's the girl who I'm going to talk to in Target to pick up a prescription from, and she's a young Latina, uh, uh, pharmacist, and I'm like, sister, hey, you know, and just, I don't know, just talking to her every time I go in and how things going and, you know, and just wanting to make sure she's okay. And so I think that, you know, oftentimes we look at mentorship as checking off all these boxes that I call them this week, but I talk, it's just not that. It's so relational. Um, and we talk about in our organization, this concept of being gender responsive. And although the, 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 the the, the, um, the theory and the concept has been built around gender. It translates beyond gender. And so, you know, in that concept of gender responsive, it's talked about the importance of being relational with people. Um, who doesn't want someone to be relational with them? It talks about being strength-based and asset-based, that you see people for their strengths um, and not looking at them from this deficit lens. It talks about being culturally responsive and understanding you know, cultural differences and leaving room for to embrace culture. And it also um, talks about, uh, oh, I'm missing a couple others, they'll come to me as we talk, but, but yeah, being gender responsive, you know, and, and just what it means when we look at the total the totality of people and holistic is another one, that, that you look at them as this whole entire being. And just because I see you today, um, on, on this podcast, that I understand that there are so many other hats that you wear and, and that there's this whole being that can be touched and inspired um, and that we see you 
from that vein. So, you know, I think that as we approach mentorship, as we think about even um, how uh, race comes in, mentorship is a great way uh, to begin to allow people to understand how they can come together under this umbrella of learning about one another, learning about culture. And, and I think it's through mentorship. I think about even mentorship with my students. Um, I am not the atypical professor. Uh, I, I am um, very understanding. I am uh, academically sensitive and um, emotionally intelligent. And so that's the hat I wear when we're uh, tearing down um, a lot of the myths, conceptions, lies, uh, generational untruths mm. about uh, who people of color are, their contributions to this country, um, their contributions to our society, to science, mm -hmm. to technology, to music, to all of these things. And, um, and so I think even using that approach in the classroom uh, allows students to be more transparent um, so that when um, something is said that even my students of color can say, um, you know, this was said in our group and I didn't really appreciate that, but understanding where it was coming from. And so, so it's empowering at the same time. So I believe that's what mentorship is, is all about. It's about being a role model and example. But it's also about empowering them um, to not just take on the next generation's shoes, but to be, to step into those shoes right now, right, right now. Wow. Okay. I, I have a lot I could ask and say, but Seth, I'll start with you. I, I mean, I got the first question in. <laughs> no, I think uh, when you were talking about uh, mentorship and sort of the, the relation that you kind of build off of that, I think it's, it's one of the things that I know Martina and I have talked about how important it is to have people who, who relate to you, yeah. who, who look like you, who can understand your experience. And I think as a, as a young woman of color, you know, coming into, you know, in the nonprofit field has been where I've been in the last, oh my gosh, 11 years, you know, there, there isn't a lot of people who look like me in sort of the tier tops of nonprofits. Mm -hmm. when you think of the C-suites and you think of those in, in senior yeah. leadership. And, and I was like, well, I, I, who can I look to that can, guide me to get there and it's just it's 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 hard to find people you know that that can guide you even within you know your own institution and even you know and and, and those that are you know the smaller nonprofits here you can find those but you know they struggle and they don't have a lot of time to dedicate you know for mentorship and you understand because they're, they're, they're dedicated to their community and they want to do that so when you brought that up you know I, I think about you know people that I've come across with during you know my journey and how I always just take a moment to just you know try to talk to them give whatever you know advice that I could give you know or answer or just make myself available <laughs> for for them to reach out to because it is tough I mean it was tough during college for me like to find you know, professors who could understand and, and really be empathetic to uh, a student that was commuting and had parents who relied on her and things like that. And it was just this, this whole thing where, it, you know, you, you, as you were talking, I was just thinking back through all of that. I was like, yeah, it's so true. Like I didn't find a lot of those people and there were far few in between uh, that, that understood. And, you know, I was lucky enough in my current job to find someone who 
who understood and had been there and, and was able to guide and, and provide guidance and and sort of be part of that journey. But yeah, I think it was just one of those things where you were talking, I was like, it's so true how it could just be, you mentioned the pharmacist you see, see yeah. or just whoever you come across with at, at, a, at the restaurant or wherever. And it's just giving that that moment and getting to know someone's story because you know, it's, it's so important to just let people know that you're seen. Absolutely. That, that is so powerful and true, Lisette, because I think, you know, um, so one of my, uh, my eldest niece, um, she is in biochemistry and she just completed her bachelor's degree. She, she and another African-American girl are the first African-Americans to graduate from DePaul University in the science department with this particular degree. And I cannot tell you um, how challenging it was for her. Um, not just, of course, the academics of biochemistry in and of itself as a major, but the parts of those professors and fellow students who make assumptions about your knowledge because you're Black, so no one wants to be your lab partner, um, or professors, when you're maybe slow to get this particular concept, the why behind, you're not getting this concept. Some of that was because she transferred from a different university to DePaul because she felt like that university was not preparing her. So there was a deficit that she transferred with. Um, and so one of the things that she said to me that I will never forget, she had an opportunity to participate in a program that we offer uh, and it's called Fem to STEM. And it allows high school girls to be introduced to, uh, of course, the STEM fields and to really, if nothing else, increase their confidence. Um, because it is one of the primary reasons why students of color, male or female, uh, oftentimes leave the field. Uh, the challenges of, am I, Am I smart enough? Do I know enough? Do I have the tenacity, the capacity, even the funding, all of that, right? And so um, she said to me, she said, Auntie, you know, the only reason why I'm able to forge through and forge ahead in this is because I remember everything that you Black women told me at them was them. Everything. And it, 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 it's sad, but it's a reality and it's a truth that we have to understand that when our daughters, because these are daughters in our community, um, accept these majors or our sons pursue these types of majors, they automatically need a covering and a network of mentors just to encourage them and to continue to go ahead. Um, because um, after the George Floyd incident, um, you know, my nieces were at home, the one who attends the University of San Diego, sadly, she was at home. She did not want to leave San Diego to come back to Chicago's coldness in uh, uh, March of 2020. So we, of course, we were cold. She was leaving off the beach. Um, and she's also a STEM. She's majoring in cybersecurity engineering. So they both were home, uh, the one in Belkin, and they weren't kind of out into the protests. Uh, um, you know, their parents were kind of like, you, there are multiple ways to protest, figure out your way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so they approached me and said, you know, um, you know, can we stay with you during our time? We're home. I said, of course. But they were like, everybody else is on a different schedule. You want to act on the schedule. We need to be with you. Yes, come on, stay with me. And so we're talking. And so um, they, I, I told them that I emailed all my students, every student I had ever taught. 
I emailed them after the George Floyd incident because I knew many of them were back home. Um, some of which I knew the toxicity, the racial toxicity of their homes. Mm-hmm. And I knew that based on what they saw and based on um, uh, the networks that their families uh, were watching and the algorithms of their social media, yeah. that they may be seeing a different narrative than the rest of us were seeing. And so I wanted to challenge them to remember critical thinking, remember emotional intelligence, expand your data pool. That's you know, making sure that they didn't forget what they had learned in, in our class and how they had connected with people who didn't look like them um, and had really become a community. That's the goal into the classes to become this community, right? And so I told them, I said, well, I emailed all my students and some of my students were like, oh my God, Professor Morrison, I'm so glad you sent this. I am in this, in this social tension right now in my home and, and just hearing you just re- reminds me of what I'm supposed to do. And so, you know, so my niece, the biochem one says, I know what my protest is, so what is it? She said, I'm going to email two professors in particular who I know um, demonstrated bias against me and another Latina sister who was in the program with her. Um, and, and I wanna let them know that how I felt and how I knew other students of color felt. And I wanna just challenge them now no longer being in their class. Mm-hmm. I said, well, protest with the pen, with the email. Absolutely, with the keyboard, type that email. And um, she received a response back very quickly from um, a white professor, female, um, who uh, said to, to my niece, she said, first of all, I want to apologize because I thought I was woke. And I think that was the hardest thing for my niece because in the class, she carried herself like, I'm so woke, I'm so this, I'm so that. But you could see the differences in how she would treat students of color and so she emailed her back and she said I am I'm embarrassed and I'm sorry and she went on to um tell Nyla how she felt after reading the email and um uh she said you know if you come I don't know you know with COVID if we'll come back on campus before you graduate she said but I'd love to have a conversation with you she said no one has ever as confrontational with me um, in such a gracious way um, about their experience in my class. Mm. Yeah. Um, The other professor who was a male, um, he was also a professor of color, um, but for whatever reason, um, uh, many students of color did not feel as welcome as other students in his class. Mm. Um, And uh, his response to her was, uh, I'm sorry you felt that way, um, but I don't know what, what you're looking for me to do at this point, you know, since you're no longer in my class. Mm. So, I mean, either way, it's a win. It's a win because you brought that knowledge to them. And so I say that because when we think about, you know, whether it's your little cousin that's going away to college or someone at your church or someone in your organization or just a young person in your neighborhood, um, whatever it is that they're going into, they need our support. I mean, these are some challenging times when it comes to black and brown identity, right? They're being challenged about critical race theory is is now undefined. It's been out since forever. And now all of a sudden, (laughs) 
it's, it's under fire, right? And so you think about why is it that um, something that is represented about who I am or even about my story, the narrative of my people in this country, why is it being challenged or our experiences in, in this country? Um, why, why are those being challenged? And so, you know, they, they need us. Um, not only young people, but we need each other. I need mentors. Mentorship is ageless, it's timeless. Um, and so, you know, when we think about what it means to, to you, to, to be able to mentor someone in the nonprofit industry, but what it also means to you to have people to mentor you um, as a rising nonprofit leader um, in a very dominated white space, even in serving people of color, specifically African-Americans. Um, you think about those organizations that receive countless of millions of dollars serve our young people um, and they are not from our communities. And, and, and what does that mean for organizations, uh, black and brown, who've been doing that same work for many years and have struggled to receive funding, but their organizations can open overnight seemingly sometimes and, and receive funding very quickly um, through con social connections. And, and so you think about that in terms of uh, the impact and what it means to, to, to see and to have people who journey with you as you pursue your professional aspirations. Hmm. And I know I said a lot. Follow up, follow up with <laughs> that. <laughs> every every time up. we have one of these conversations with <laughs> everyone, I've, there's always so much to, to process, but all, so much wisdom that I know I've gained and hopefully you is watching and listening also are gaining uh but i i think about that you know what you were talking about about your niece and and, and challenging it uh but the professor who's a professor of color not not being able to recognize that that, that he has some like underlying kind of biases and a problem it, it you know, it makes me think of people that I've come across to who are like, no, like, I could never, like, I have no, like, I, I treat everybody the same or things like that. And it's like, no, we all, unfortunately, because we live in a, and operate in this white supremacy uh, culture and, and society, like, we all have to realize that we do have biases against each other. And we can move forward if we don't recognize them, you know, and and to have such a nonchalant, we're like, what do you want me to do? Like, you're not even in my class anymore. It doesn't class. matter. I know. So just completely dismissive of oh. what you think, you know. So that was, yes. Yes. Been, yeah, I've been really, I mean, and, you know, it's, it's interesting and not interesting that you say that, but I know just from my experience often, I mean, that I've dealt with other people of color in like an academic setting, it can be some of that not even recognizing your own self. So how can you tell your niece, well, I'm not sure how to assist you. So good luck pretty much, you know? And so, yeah, it, yeah. so it is unfortunate, but I do, you know, when you touched on earlier about, you know, just you coming fresh out of undergrad, you know, you were in your early twenties. And to me, it just says that you can be any age and yeah. you, like, you know, you don't have to be, yeah. I mean, you know, you don't, even, you don't even have to go to college, but if that's yeah. your, you know, if that's your journey, your path, then, you know, great. But it's like, you can 
you know, we don't have to put ourselves in certain boxes in a way to say, well, you know, I don't know this person. I don't have enough, you know, I'm, I'm this age. Like you can, you can do it. You can, you know, you can, you can find a way to do it and you can be 40 to 50 to 19. If you want to do something that's your passion, you can find a way to accomplish it. So I just, that's like one of my takeaways. I'm hearing you say that. Absolutely. And, and I was just attending a workshop that talked about even in like your, in midlife, right? In your fifties. And, and, and we talked about this before we actually came on air, uh, that again, you know, now I'm in my fifties and I'm saying, well, who am I all over again? And Mm -hmm. you start to ask those questions. What do I really want to do? What do I like to do? Um, and what do I currently do that I used to like that I don't like to do presently, right? So understanding that I'm evolving as well. And there is a way that I, I used to live life um, that I just don't really care to live at that pace any longer. I have been organizing spaces back at home. And I uh, found my planner book because I'm still one of those old school. I have to have like my calendar. I'll put it electronically, but I still have to have a hard copy, right? Uh, And so I opened my, so I had saved some of my books because some of them have notes in the back. And the goal someday, I don't know at wherever when, is to get all the notes out the back. I'm going to need them. I don't know how or why because they've been stored up all these years. But I pulled out my 2017 uh, the 2017 or 2018 appointment book. And I got, it, I just felt like I was having an anxiety attack as I was looking at the, I mean, like one meeting after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. And, and so think this was pre-COVID. So we're not using Zoom. I'm like driving to five parks and bigger parks and downtown. And, I mean, like, and then having a meeting in the evening somewhere, whether it's in my church. I mean, it just every day and how at some point in life, it felt good to see that my calendar was booked and that every breathing moment of my day was being used up. And and I felt a sense of accomplishment from that. Well, today, absolutely not. No, I'm the same. <laughs> I'm just That's a no for me. <laughs> and, and, and at this point in life, um, Zoom is like in my back pocket because I'm not driving all over the city to come to these mm-hmm. one hour meetings and an hour and a half. Absolutely not. And deal with traffic and all of that. Um, and, and I think just being able to have a level of flexibility so that when I was leaving from our community house in Inglewood the other day, I called my sister-in-law and she said, oh, your niece has a, a volleyball game. I said, Oh, well, where is it? Oh, it's not far from the community house. It's that perspective. I'm coming, you know? And and for my youngest niece, for me to show, she was like, oh my God, Auntie, when I saw you walk into the room, I just felt so inspired. <laughs> I love that, oh. Oh, Because Auntie is going to get it. Come on, so-and-so, come on. You know, I, 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 that's me, right? Like, I'm like, I got to make up some cheers. It just wasn't loud enough. We, we need some camaraderie around here. Well, we're the chance, you know? And so, you know, but just to be able to do that. And when I looked at that calendar before, I was like, I would not, you know, if my sister-in-law had said that, I would have said, oh, okay, well, uh, I'll call you all later this evening. You know, tell Hannah, call me, let me know how the game went, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so I think, too, and I don't think that this epiphany has to happen um, post a pandemic 
or because you're 50. I think that you can choose to be productive and successful and accomplished and accomplished can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different spaces. Just as we as are complex in our identities, so can be so can my accomplishments, right? Attending my niece's uh, volleyball game to see her serve these winning points, that was an accomplishment, right? No one may give me an award for that um, to say, hey, you're the best on or anything. But the gratitude that I felt right. um, for her to be there in that moment. Um, I couldn't buy. And so I think, you know, as we continue to look at, you know, who am I? And especially even in the context of, of race and, you know, those racial identities and our social identity, which is so complex in and of itself, um, I'm, I'm, I, it makes me think about even our homes, you know, um, our parents, how they're brought up, um, yeah. their spheres of influence, their, their friendships where you worship, where they work, uh, you know, where we socialize as a family and those families, how those families look. And it makes me think about, you know, um, I remember being a child and my mother had one of her college uh, yearbooks and she attended the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, which back then was called Arkansas a and And this was a time when uh, Governor Faubus uh, and the whole segregation and the sending of the troops and the the, uh, um, um, the, the Little Rock Nine, all of this was happening. And I remember as a child, just kind of looking through my mom's yearbook, you know, and then I saw this picture of the governor and she had written uh, just a slanderous comment over his face about who he was. And I remember asking my mom, like, why did you do that? That was so mean. And she said, because he was mean and evil to black people because of our skin color. And um, she commenced to telling me about her college experiences at that particular time and how my grandfather uh, forbade her uh, from doing sit-ins sit in Little Rock because she was their only child. And, uh, and my grandfather was like, I don't want to be locked up because some people have put their hands on my daughter. So for the sanity of of your mother and I, just know that your protest is getting that degree and then going to teach in the school of your choice. So that is your protest, get that college degree. And um, at that particular time, the tuition was $46 a month. I and wish, I wish. I don't want to even talk about it now, man. Oh my. $46. Forty-six, and my grandparents struggled. <laughs> Forty-six dollars yeah. a month, but they did it, and my mother, uh, you know, was successful, and she started teaching in Arkansas, and transitioned to Chicago. But just what that meant um, for me to see my mom's reaction to to that picture, um, and to hear some of her stories. Um, even about seeing, walking to school during World War II and seeing those concentration camps in Arkansas with Mr. Yee and his family who owned a store in her town. And now they are locked behind this gate and, and her now walking to school and seeing these people locked up behind this gate because the government did not trust their uh, um, um, allegiance to uh, our country. And so just seeing so many things growing up and of course the segregation and then coming to Chicago and uh, becoming a teacher here and 
uh, being very intent on raising my brother and I uh, with my father, um, you know, on, on the South Side in, in, in a middle class community. And I remember attending, and this is where that faith piece comes in, because I want to challenge that. Um, during our, our, our talk. Um, I remember attending, you were attending this um, it's a Christian school and um, it's a uh, um, not evangelical, they're a faith similar to the evangelical uh, church, but they owned this Christian school. And so all the teachers were white. Um, um, about 95% of the students were black and was on the South side of, of, of Chicago in the Rosen community. And um, I remember that when I was about in the third or fourth grade, that Roots came out, the television show, yeah. its first airing ever. And I can only speak for the African-American community um, in our social um, network, but everybody was watching it every night. And my parents would make us sit in front of the television and watch the story of Kunta Kinte uh, in the United States. And um, at the time, I didn't probably think anything of it. I knew that there were some challenges and I felt like uh, that there was some discriminatory practices and some biases that they felt. I couldn't articulate it at that age. Mm -hmm. But by the time I graduated in the eighth grade, I was little Malcolm Martin at that school. And they were glad to see me. <laughs> <laughs> they were, yeah. because I felt like um, some of the things that they were doing, and I was not putting them in a, a racial context then. Um, I was putting them more in a faith context, that some of the things that you all are doing, they aren't fair, and God wouldn't consider them to be fair. And based on our biblical teachings, they aren't fair. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking later in years, why is it that we attended that school and the population was primarily African-American. And you all knew Roots was coming on every night and we never talked about it. Not once. There was not even an acknowledgement in our social studies class that, I mean, like none of this. It wasn't going to. And it, I said, um, I have a problem with that. And just to see how um, faith is used and manipulated um, in you know, this time period that we're in and how uh, allegiance with Christianity has become now um, some political proclamation. Uh, you know, it's, it's unsettling, it's disturbing, and it's wrong. It is, it is. And it's wrong. It is wrong. It is. And, and I, so, no, please, please, please. No, I was just going to, I was going to say something completely different, but I want you to finish this piece. Finish what you're saying. No, I was just going to say, and so, you know, it, it demonstrates that um, people of faith have a responsibility as well, you know, um, to step outside of the walls of those churches and to confront and to challenge and to educate um, brothers and sisters in our own faith about the racism, blatant racism and prejudice that exists um, in people who practice the faith. Because I won't say it's in the faith because it's not there. 
Um, we practice it, right? Or we don't. And so it's in the people. And so how do we then, um, you know, have those conversations? And so I have friends who struggled after George Floyd's uh, murder um, because their congregations, which were multi-racial uh, and non-denominational, and, you know, there was no talk of it. There was nothing. And so, you know, friends who confronted pastors to say, why are we talking about this? Because well, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. That's not how we think here. But then we need to say that, right? Yeah. And we need to challenge what's wrong and say what's wrong. And so, you know, I just want to really just challenge people who are of faith to say that, you know, this is not an isolated space uh, of talking about racism and white supremacy and and especially uh, the, the form of using it from a Christian context that we need to be having some conversations as well. We need to be having some face-to-face, -face, um, no holds bar, truth confessional conversations about um, how our faith has been manipulated or has been tried to be manipulated by people who are only um, lip speakers and, and, and not uh, life demonstrators of what we believe. Yeah, I think uh, I want to explore this. Um, uh, Martina knows That's why I'm my, like, what's, I'm my like, thoughts on all this, but I know we're, uh, I think it's a good time to sort of close out this first sort of episode with you, Sharita. And I think when we come back, I think if we, we look through, if we just talk through that Christianity, that faith, Christianity. And, that, and that white supremacy and how that has really taken a hold uh, of Christianity here in the United States uh, and what it means to, I think, to the three of us. We, I know I've had conversations with Martina about this, so um, please stay tuned to our, our, our listeners and our viewers. We're going to come back uh, and I think dig into this faith because, you know, I think you, you've brought it up a few times, Rhea, and I think it's when something like that is brought up, I feel like it's, it's important to dig in and, and give it its space uh, yeah. and, and not completely rush it. So stay tuned. Thank you for, for listening. Thank you, Sharita, for sticking with us. Uh, Perspectives will be back uh, and we will see you at the next uh, episode. <laughs>